Time is a fascinating concept to consider. When we think about this incredible universe that God created, we usually don't think of time being a part of creation. What I mean is, when we think about creation, we think about the sun, the moon, the stars, planets, animals, nature, lakes, rivers, etc. And certainly those are all amazing aspects of God's creation, but time is another one. In the beginning is the very first phrase in our English Bibles, and that launches us into time. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Therefore, you could say this, before God created, there was no such thing as time. We often use the phrase eternity past. I use that phrase often in referring to what was before creation. But there really isn't any such thing as eternity past. However, we all know what is meant by that phrase eternity past, and I don't know if there's another way to say it. How do you describe the time prior to creation when there wasn't any time dimension prior to creation? Is your head spinning? If it isn't, it's because you've tuned out or you stopped thinking. That's why I began by saying that time is a fascinating concept to consider. It is especially interesting to contemplate time in relation to God, because there's a sense in which God is outside of time. Certainly he works in time, he steps into time, but scripture is clear that he is eternal, and time is a finite concept within the created universe. So the Lord's sense of time and our sense of time don't always line up together. 2 Peter 3.8 says, But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Peter made that statement to explain why God hasn't already sent his Son in consuming judgment. And basically what Peter says there is God's perspective of time is different than ours. From our point of view, it seems like it has been a long time since the second coming was promised. But from God's point of view, it has only been a couple days since Jesus left the earth. That is why Revelation 1-3 can say, for the time is near, but the events of the book of Revelation haven't taken place yet. God doesn't measure time like we do. Those who fail to keep that in mind will do some strange things with the book of Revelation such as trying to force an interpretation that says everything happened in A.D. 70 or at least in the first century. Beloved, understand you don't need to do that kind of thing to the book of Revelation if you just realize that God's perspective of time is different than ours. Revelation 1.1 says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants things which must shortly take place. The Greek word translated shortly or quickly in Revelation 1.1, depending on your version, is used seven times in the book of Revelation. If you compare all the uses of that word, the emphasis seems to be on suddenness. In other words, Revelation 1.1 is saying that when the events of the book of Revelation begin to unfold, it will take place with suddenness. But the fact that they haven't taken place yet doesn't mean that God has spoken inaccurately or he has failed to keep his promise. 
God's perspective of time is different than ours. He doesn't measure time like we do. That's Peter's reminder in 2 Peter 3, 8, where he says, remember this one thing. Remember this one thing. By the way, it would be twisting Peter's words to try to use that verse as some kind of mathematical formula to do time calculations in the Bible. And the reason why I mention that is there are some people who take those words in 2 Peter 3.8 and they misread them by assuming that Peter says one day equals a thousand years and a thousand years equals a day, but that's not what the verse says. Peter clearly uses the adverb like or as in the verse. One day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. One thousand years does not equal one day in some kind of prophetic mathematical formula to help you figure out a hidden secret interpretation of the Bible, which is what some people do. With our infinite God, who is eternal and in a sense outside of time, one thousand years is like a day. It's another reminder to us that our perspective of time and the Lord's perspective of time isn't always the same. That truth is at the heart of the text we're going to consider in this message. As we turn our thoughts to the study of God's perfect word, we're going to jump into John chapter 7. So let's turn there together to the Gospel of John, the fourth Gospel record, and the seventh chapter. Our text will be verses 1 through 13. So please follow along as I read those verses for us. John chapter 7 beginning in verse 1. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast... I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there, were, there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, He is good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Before we jump right into these verses, let's acquaint ourselves with where this chapter fits in John's gospel. Since we will be in this chapter for a few weeks, we need to sort of step back and see the big picture. Back in chapter 5, Jesus healed a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. This healing took place on the Sabbath day in Jerusalem during the time of a great feast, and that infuriated the Jewish leaders. 
In fact, they were so angry with Jesus that they sought how they might kill him. But to make matters worse in their eyes, Jesus justified his action by claiming absolute equality with God. Then in in verses 9 through 47 of chapter 5, Jesus calls five witnesses to the stand to verify his claim of equality with God. And we looked at all of that in great detail a while back. As you move into chapter 6, the setting changes. Chapter 5 took place down in the southern part of Israel in Judea. That's the southern province of Israel. Chapter 6 took place in Galilee, which is the northern province of Israel. But the two chapters follow the exact same pattern. Jesus performs a miracle, and then he launches into a discourse on his deity. In chapter 5, he performed a miracle by healing a man on the Sabbath, and then he launched into a discourse asserting and defending his deity. In chapter 6, Jesus performed a miracle by multiplying bread to feed the 5,000, and then he launched into the bread of life discourse asserting and defending his deity. By the end of that sixth chapter, everyone had turned away from Jesus except the twelve. Remember that? Jesus said to them, will you also go away? And then that profound statement, to whom shall we go? Where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Where, Where else can we go? Those two chapters of John's gospel, five and six, are known as the period of controversy. In those chapters, the Jewish people are continually arguing with Jesus about his claims of equality with God. As the gospel record continues on into chapter 7, it transitioned into the time known as the period of conflict. The period of controversy was marked by arguments stemming from unsettled attitudes and opinions about Jesus. But in this section, the period of conflict, those attitudes and opinions are no longer unsettled. No, no, not unsettled whatsoever. In this section, the attitudes and opinions are firmly settled upon hatred of Jesus. As you leave chapter 6 and move into chapter 7, you begin to see a new stage, a new phase in the life and ministry of Jesus. John's record moves from the period of controversy into the period of conflict. Now, one other thing by way of introduction here. Keep in mind that there is a six-month time gap between chapter 6 and chapter 7. The events of chapter 6 took place around the time of the Feast of the Passover, and the events of chapter 7 take place around the time of the Feast of the Tabernacles. Passover was in April, and the Feast of Tabernacles was in October. So there is a six-month time gap in the white spaces there between chapters 6 and 7. If you are very interested in chronology, which is a tough thing in the Gospels, as you probably know if you've ever tried to do chronology, you can jot down in that white space between chapters 6 and 7, six-month time gap. With all that in mind, notice how John opens this seventh chapter. He says, After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Ever since Jesus had healed the paralyzed man 
back in chapter 5 on the Sabbath day in Jerusalem, the Jewish leaders looked for an opportunity to kill him. That had taken place over a year ago, but they weren't about to forget it. Neither were they going to forget his constant claims of equality with God. They wanted Jesus dead, and Jesus knew it. That's why verse 1 tells us that he stayed up in the northern province of Galilee. Isn't that interesting? That Jesus avoided them in this situation. Now, he didn't always do that. But it's just a fascinating thing to consider that Jesus, with his power and his ability, we know he could have gotten away. We know he could have stopped them. But he didn't always do things in sort of the the way that we might assume, you know, like he's going to somehow do things in a supernatural way. Instead, he just decided, you know what? I I won't go down south. I just won't go into their territory. I'll stay up north in Galilee. That's what verse 1 is referring to. By the way, six months after the events of this chapter, Jesus will be murdered outside of Jerusalem. I mean, in Jerusalem, but outside the city walls. Outside, that was a specific issue that Jesus was murdered outside the walls. So from this point in the Gospel of John, from this point on, the focus is on the last six months of Jesus' life and ministry. Chapter 6 took place a year before his death. Chapter 7 takes place six months before his death. So that is why I said there is this six-month time gap between chapter 6 and chapter 7. Now maybe you're wondering, well, what did Jesus do during those six months? Well, Jesus spent those six months primarily, not exclusively, but primarily teaching, instructing, and discipling and preparing his men. The time gap between chapters 6 and 7 could be called the time of withdrawal. Jesus withdrew to Tyre and Sidon. Some of the synoptics tell us about that, an event or two here or there. Jesus withdrew to the north. He withdrew to the east. He withdrew to Bethsaida, to Caesarea Philippi. Jesus withdrew to spend time with his men. He knew the priority of discipling men to reproduce themselves. He knew that this was the best investment of his time, and so does everyone who is really serious about ministry. Paul recognized this priority, and he wanted to communicate this priority to Timothy. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Just turn over to the right a few books in the New Testament to 2 Timothy chapter 2. After Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, then 1 and 2 Timothy. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. You therefore, my son, Paul writes to Timothy, his son in the faith, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. As it has been noted many times by many Bible teachers, there are four generations, if you will, in verse 2. Paul to Timothy to faithful men to others. This was the vision that Paul was passing on to Timothy. Reminding Timothy, you always invest your life in others so that they can invest their life in others and so on. Continues the, the chain, the links in the chain forward. So 
So here Paul says in verse 2, Timothy, reproduce yourself in the lives of faithful men who will in turn reproduce themselves in the lives of others. That was a priority in Paul's ministry because it was the priority of Jesus' ministry. That's what he does in that six-month time gap between chapters 6 and 7 of John. Now back to John chapter 7. So Jesus spent these six months up north, way up north. He went not only from Galilee, but as I said, he went to Tyre and Sidon and way up to Caesarea of Philippi. He spent this six-month gap discipling his men. Jesus knew that the issue isn't how broad your ministry is, it's how deep it is. Robert Coleman, in his excellent book, The Master Plan of Evangelism, says this, Men were his method. It all started by Jesus calling a few men to follow him. His concern was not with programs to reach the multitudes, but with men whom the multitudes could follow. Men were to be his method of winning the world to God. The initial objective of Jesus' plan was to enlist men who could bear witness to his life and carry on his work after he returned to the Father, period. This is a concept that many in the church, and I'm just speaking in general here, many in the church have missed altogether. We tend to think that all the ministry can be done in large group meetings like this, but it can't. It just cannot. The heart of true, effective, long-term ministry is discipleship, building men and women of God one-on-one or one with a few, small groups, but it's investing in people's lives, training, discipling, nurturing. Jesus knew this. That's why he didn't feel like he was wasting his time during these six months as he continued the process of teaching his men, training them, discipling them, preparing them for his departure. He didn't feel compelled to run all over Israel trying to evangelize every single person in the land. He knew that the most effective way to get the work of God done is to build laborers for the kingdom because then it's multiplication, not merely addition. So this was his priority. And it is always the priority of men who pattern their ministries after the Lord Jesus. I think of the great evangelist D.L. Moody. Some historians use the phrase that he shook two continents for God. But that didn't cause him to lose his perspective. He knew that the priority was training workers for the kingdom. That's why he founded the Moody Bible Institute, which continues to train men and women to this day. Scripture tells us Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. We might assume, therefore, that he would spend every waking hour, every waking minute, trying to evangelize, but that's not the way he did it. That's why the priority of Jesus' life and ministry was discipleship, because Jesus knows that shepherds don't beget sheep. Sheep beget sheep. That is why training and nurturing was such a priority in his ministry, and that's what he did during these six months of silence. During this time, he continued to teach his men. Also, during this time, he manifested his glory to some of his men on the Mount of Transfiguration. But even in that, giving them that experience, his purpose was to train them, equip them, prepare them. And after Jesus' death and resurrection, when he was about to leave to ascend back to the right hand of the Father, he reminded his men of his priority. In Matthew 28, 19, he told them, Do what I've done with you. 
Just do what I've done. Make disciples. According to the other gospel accounts, and John doesn't tell us this, but according to the synoptics, that's what Jesus was working on during these six months of withdrawal as he walked in Galilee. All John tells us here in verse 1 is, he didn't walk in Judea, but he walked in Galilee. The other gospels fill in the picture for us as Jesus is using concentrated time for his men. Well, John tells us in verse 2, now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. This was one of the great Jewish pilgrimage feasts of Israel, along with Pentecost and Passover. The celebration lasted eight days. Josephus called it Israel's greatest and holiest feast. It was a feast of thanksgiving for harvest, similar to our holiday of thanksgiving. The devout Jews lived outdoors in booths made of tree branches for seven days. It is for seven days as a reminder of God's gracious provision in the desert during their forefathers' wanderings. The feast signified the fact that God dwells with his people. All Jewish males within a 15-mile radius of Jerusalem were required to participate in this feast. So that was coming up, John tells us. In verse 3, his brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now, who are these brothers? Matthew 13, 55 tells us that Jesus did have at least four brothers. They're named James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Not the Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. After Jesus was born of Mary while she was yet a virgin, Joseph and Mary had other children. So these brothers would actually be half-brothers of Jesus since Joseph was not Jesus' physical father. So those are the brothers that verse 3 is talking about. And here in verse 3, these brothers said to Jesus, listen, I'm paraphrasing here, the Feast of Tabernacles is at hand. Leave Galilee... Go down south there, go to Judea, go to the capital where, where things are really going to be humming. Things are, there's going to be a, a, a big buzz of activity around the feast. Go there and, and show yourself openly. Show off by doing these miracles. That's what they suggest in verses 3 and 4. It's difficult to know for sure what their motive was when they said this. The next verse, verse 5, clearly tells us that they weren't believers at this point. And John adds that editorial comment to, to sort of affect our thinking as to what was going on here in verses 3 and 4. So we know there's some, for lack of a better way to say it, some negative slant on what they said here. Verse 5 is clear. They weren't believers at this point, so their comments were coming from that point of view or that perspective. Therefore, some like Charles Swindoll and Josh McDowell, see this statement by the brothers as sarcastic. And that's possible. These brothers may have been saying, they may have been embarrassed by Jesus. Here he is in Nazareth, you know, this little podunk village claiming to be the Messiah. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And they may have been saying, Jesus, why don't you just go to Jerusalem to do your thing? Stop embarrassing us here in our own hometown. Stop hanging around Galilee here claiming to be the Messiah. That's one possibility as to what they were saying. Just go there and do your thing. 
Or they may have been wavering back and forth in their view of their brother Jesus. So they may have been, in a sense, asking for more evidence. In other words, okay, you claim to be the Messiah. They, verse 5 says they didn't believe in him yet. You claim to be the Messiah. Why don't you go to this feast? It's perfect setting. Do your miracles. That, that just may convince us. That, that's possibly what was going on here, that they were requesting more evidence, if you will. Or they may have just been encouraging Jesus to go to the feast and show off his power so he would be made king, hoping that they would reap some of the benefits as his brothers. You know, in other words, they had an understanding from Hebrew Scripture about the Messianic kingdom. And so they may have been saying, listen, Jesus, you claim to be the Messiah, you claim to be the king, go to Jerusalem, force the issue, you know, force them to make you king, and as your brothers, we get some of the benefits. We get maybe key positions in the kingdom. No one can be certain as to what their motives were, but in light of verse 5, we know their motives for suggesting this weren't, weren't pure. They wanted Jesus to go to Jerusalem to do more, more miracles. They couldn't see how he could make an impact in the nation by spending so much time in obscurity with just a few disciples. And remember, the Galilee region up north was far more rural. So they're thinking, if you're the Messiah, you're going about it the wrong way. You're up here in rural Galilee spending all this time in obscurity with your disciples. That's not the way to be made king. And John adds the footnote in verse 5. He says, for even his brothers did not believe in him. This brings out an important principle we need to understand, and that is the fact that exposure to Jesus doesn't guarantee faith. Just because you were raised in a Christian home or in the church or in a Christian school doesn't mean you have pure, genuine faith. In fact, the opposite is often true. Familiarity breeds contempt in many cases. Jesus' own brothers didn't believe in him. I don't know if you've ever spent much time thinking about that, but putting yourself in Jesus' shoes or his sandals, if you will, here he is going around proclaiming to be the Messiah, knowing that his own brothers didn't believe the awkwardness of that. What There must be something that's not right in your life, Jesus. I mean, your own family doesn't believe in you. They know you better. I've often thought about how that dynamic was for Jesus, that his own brothers didn't believe him, and it was a known fact that they didn't believe him. It was known. But the good part of the story is that eventually they did, or at least some of them did. According to 1 Corinthians 15, 7, it seems that James came to believe when Jesus appeared to him after the resurrection. James later became one of the pastors of the Jerusalem church, and he wrote the New Testament book bearing his name right near the end of our New Testaments, the book of James. Jude also eventually believed. He's called Judas in in the gospel accounts, but his book in the Bible is called Jude for obvious reasons, so as not to confuse him with Judas Iscariot. Jude eventually believed, and he also wrote the New Testament book bearing his name, second to the last book in our English Bibles, the book of Jude. But at this point, none of Jesus' brothers believed. Verse 6 tells us, Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. Jesus knew God's divine timetable for his life. He knew it. Several times in John's gospel, this is mentioned. In fact, down in verse 8, it men it's mentioned again. You go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. 
And then if you skip down to verse 30 in this same chapter, we read, Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. And then over in chapter 8, look at chapter 8, verse 20. It says, These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him. Why? For his hour had not yet come. It's still, it's still about six months away from the time Jesus is to be crucified, and God's timetable could not be thwarted. God has, had established a specific time for Jesus to be crucified, and Jesus knew it. Jesus was going to be killed at Passover as the Passover lamb and not a day before. Look at chapter 12. It comes out again there in chapter 12, verse 23. It says, But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now is the time, Jesus says. Now it is. Verse 27 of the same chapter Verse 27, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. And in chapter 13, verse 1 says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus knew it was the hour. And by the way, chapter 13, as you probably know, is the night before his crucifixion. This is the night before. This is the night of his arrest and the beginning of those six trials, three before the Romans, three before the Jews. The hour has come. In chapter 17, in his great high priestly prayer, it says, verse 1, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your son also may glorify you. Jesus knew when it was his time to die. And it wasn't time for him to die in chapter 7. Now let's go back to that chapter. Jesus was on a divine timetable and nothing could thwart that. But his brothers didn't understand that because at this point they didn't belong to God. So in chapter 7 verse 6 Jesus tells them, Your time is always ready. In other words... They could come and go as they pleased because any time for them was right. The world didn't hate them like it hated Jesus. So Jesus says that to them in the next verse. Verse 7, Jesus says, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. Think about Jesus saying this to his brothers. That statement coming from Jesus should have shocked them into realizing that he was basically telling them they were of the world and not of God. They weren't in the family of God. That should have, that should have gotten their attention, but their minds were so insensitive to the truth of God that it just seemed to pass right by them. It was no big deal to them for Jesus to say that. Unless it's because they just completely passed him off and dismissed him as being ludicrous or you know, out of touch with the reality. Jesus says, hey, the world doesn't hate you because you're of the world, but the world hates me. And by the way, it still does because Jesus uncovers the evil of the world. Remember the words of John 3, 19 and 20. This is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil for everyone practicing evil hates the light. 
The people of this world practice evil. Jesus is the light. That's why they hate Jesus. Over in chapter 15, Jesus warned his disciples about this. Go back to chapter 15. This is a part of the upper room discourse on the night before the crucifixion and Jesus is using these final hours to try to prepare his men for his departure and their responsibility to continue on in his absence. And notice what he says in chapter 15, verse 18. He says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. In other words, he's saying, don't don't let it catch you by surprise, men. Don't be caught off guard. If the world hates you, just realize it's because they hated me first. You belong to me. You represent me. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. Now, Jesus wasn't saying there that they would be sinless or perfect. Their sin wouldn't be exposed, is the idea, as he he goes on to say. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my Father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my Father. That is strong language. We don't often think of it that way, but Jesus makes it clear that the majority of the people in this world hate him, and they hate the Father. Now, it may not be an aggressive hatred. In other words, they may not go around saying, I hate Jesus. I hate God. But they hate him. And maybe it just comes out in other ways. But they hate him. They do so now, and they hated him back then. And that's what Jesus said to try to prepare his men. And that's what Jesus said to his brothers in John 7. Now back to John chapter 7. So that's why Jesus had to be so careful with his timing. He knew his life was being sought. There was no reason to push the issue. There were times when Jesus specifically, it's clear, if you read the Gospels, there were times when Jesus specifically pushed on things. But for his own reasons, not always revealed to us, he felt like at this time there's no reason to push the issue. They want me dead down in Judea. I'll just stay in Galilee. I need to prepare my men. I need to train them further. I need to disciple them. There are works I can do here in Galilee. So Jesus just stayed away. Verse 8 tells us, Jesus said to his brothers, You go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. So the brothers take off to go to the feast like many devout Jews would have done. And John tells us in verse 10, But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. So his brothers go off to the feast without him. Think of the irony of this situation. Here was a group of men going to a religious feast to worship God, supposedly, at least in their minds, while rejecting their own Messiah. You say, that's ridiculous. Reject the Messiah and go off to worship God. It is ridiculous. But listen, it's no more ridiculous than what many people do today. Think about it. 
Every Sunday in our nation and other places around the world, people go to church Sunday after Sunday, supposedly, presumably, to worship God. They say they're going to worship, yet they reject His rule over their lives. There are many people who go to a church to worship, and they expose themselves to a church in this supposed worship that says, you know what, you really can't even believe what this book says. You can't trust it. You, you know, you, you need to demythologize it. You need to take all the myths out. They're going to worship God, and they're rejecting His rule, His authority over their lives. So things are, are no different today as far as the contradiction. Many Christians go to church every Sunday. There are Christians who go to church every Sunday while holding on to anger, resentment, and bitterness toward others. But they say they're going to worship. Many Christians go to church every Sunday with known sin in their lives that they aren't willing to give up, they're not willing to address, but they're going to worship. It's exactly what we see here. The brothers say, we don't believe in you, but we're going to Jerusalem to worship. It's a contradiction. But things haven't changed that much since then. Verse 11, Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? The phrase, the Jews, by the way, refers in John's gospel to the Jewish authorities or Jewish leaders. We know that because this entire crowd would have been Jewish. And we know just by the way John uses that term throughout his gospel. When he says the Jews, he's not talking about all the Jewish people in Israel or even all the Jewish people in Judea or Galilee or Jerusalem or whatever. He's referring to the authorities, the leaders who were against Jesus. So these are the Jewish leaders who are looking for Jesus. They're keeping an eye out for him. They want to peg him. They want to find him. Verse 12 says, And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, he is good. Others said, no. On the contrary, he deceives the people. That accusation was a serious charge. According to Talmudic law, the penalty for deceiving the people of God or the people of Israel was death by stoning. So people didn't know what to do with Jesus. They didn't know what to make of him. Some were saying, hey, he's a good man. Others were saying, no, no. He deceives the people. But you want to hear something? Both opinions expressed here are wrong. Both were wrong. Jesus wasn't, certainly wasn't a deceiver, but neither was he just a good man. Napoleon once made the famous remark, I know men, and Jesus Christ is more than a man. Jesus wasn't a deceiver, nor was he just a good man. He was God in human flesh. He was the Messiah. But these religious traditionalists were too blind to see that. John tells us as he closes off this paragraph, However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. People talked about him, you know, on the side, quietly. They discussed, who, what do you think? Who do you think he is? Is he a deceiver, a good person? But boy, they wouldn't talk about it openly for fear of the Jewish leaders, the Jewish authorities, the Jewish rulers. This statement here in verse 13 reminds me of those tragic verses that John pens later over in chapter 12. Turn over there with me as we close this message. Notice what John says in chapter 12. We read in verse 42 of John 12, Nevertheless, 
Even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. So John was aware that there were even leaders in Israel who believed in Jesus, but they weren't about to admit it. They weren't about to be open regarding it because they would be unsynagogued. They would be cast out of the synagogue. And then John adds this, this biting, this tragic, this sad editorial comment. He says, For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. What a tragedy. What a, what a sad statement. It never ceases to amaze me how our perspective, and I'm using the word our there, including myself in this. I'm not, I'm not pointing fingers. It never ceases to amaze me how our perspective can be so distorted that we would be more concerned with what people think of us rather than with what God thinks of us. If you are honest with yourself, if you're intellectually honest, that's something you have to wrestle with. It is so much easier for us, beloved, to be horizontal in our thinking. It's so much easier to be man-centered in our thinking. What do they think of me? What is their opinion? Than it is to think, what does God think of me? That's what really matters. You see, when we are more interested in being popular with people rather than with God, when we are more interested in being well thought of by people than with God, then as verse 43 says, we love the praise of men more than the praise of God. May God give us hearts that love him more than we love popularity with people. Let's bow together and pray that together. Father, as we close this message on this thought, thinking of chapter 7, where it says the crowds, the people, would talk about Jesus and discuss him, but not openly for fear of the Jews. And then when we read here in chapter 12 that even among the rulers there were those who believed in him, many. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess him. They would not acknowledge it, lest they would be unsynagogued, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Father, we have no room to cluck our tongues at those first century believers. We, we have no place, not if, not if we will be honest, if we will be realistic, because there are so many times in life when we love the praise of men more than the praise of God. There are so many times in life when we are consumed with thinking about what others think about us or how others view us, and we give no thought about what you think of us and how you view us at a given time in what we are doing, what we are saying, or whatever the case may be. So instead of looking down our noses at these first century believers, may this be a challenge to our own hearts to call out to you, to cry out to you, to say, God, give us hearts that love you more than we love popularity with people. God, give us hearts that are more concerned that you are pleased with us more than we would think about people being pleased with us. May that be the consuming passion of our lives 
until Jesus comes, in whose name we pray, amen.